The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another Clean Coders podcast. I'm here with Robert C. Martin, a.k.a. Uncle Bob. Uh, how's it going, Bob? Oh, it's going just great. I'm up in my uh, my cabin in Wisconsin right now where the sky is sunny and, and life is good. <laughs> I was going to say it's a little different backdrop from the normal one, so. Oh, yeah, that's right. You've got video, huh? Yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, um, yeah we've got a cabin up here north of the Delts, and it's very quiet and peaceful and pleasant. My wife and I sneak up here as often as we can. Oh, yeah. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> I, w I would love to have just a place to get away to, so, yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, because I do wind up doing that, but I wind up getting like an Airbnb or a VRBO for two or three days when I do it. Oh, sure. And so, yeah, I wonder sometimes if it'd be nice to have a cabin or something, you know, up in the mountains. I live in Utah. Plenty of places up here. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine you could find some. We used to do that, too. We used to get Airbnbs. Or... Then after a while, we uh, we got a trailer and we stuck it up here and my wife and I would haul the kids and the grandkids up to the trailer and pack it full and then we thought you know what we should just build a house and we we found a uh we found a nice lake that we could we could put it on so now we and now of course the grandkids are too old they don't come up anymore and <laughs> it's just it's just my wife and i and we we uh we have some friends up here and it's pleasant well that sounds amazing that i just have to say it sounds like a ton of fun yeah it is it's good so, for the soul. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and just to get out outside, like, I, I don't know what it is, but just being away from the city and, you know, out, out in nature, you know, as much as you want to be, I guess. And, uh, yeah, just sounds really nice. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. But uh, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and get to the topic at hand for this show. Last time you mentioned that there are a lot of resources, uh, specifically books, that are out there that have been out there for a while that people just aren't consuming or learning from anymore. And so they're missing some of these lessons that were hard won or hard fought that, yeah, they, they have to go learn the hard way again because they're not aware of them. Yes. So ancient books, ancient is the wrong word because they're only, you know, a few decades old, but right. books that came out in the sixties and seventies and eighties about computer science that, that the vast majority of programmers have not read and, and don't even think about reading. That would be uh, very useful <laughs> for, uh, for modern programmers to, uh, to gain some background. And let's start with uh, the obvious first case, which is 
at Donald Knuth's Art of Computer Programming. <laughs> the three-volume set, which was supposed to be nine volumes, but I don't think ever got more than four volumes. And he wrote the first three, God, what was it? Uh, in the early 70s, I think. And the first of those is Fundamental Algorithms. Is this a uh-huh. book that you read? You're going to turn this into a, an hour-long confessional. No, I haven't read that one. <laughs> no, I have not read this book. Okay. So this is a wonderful book. It goes through basic algorithms of data structures and trees, and queues and stacks. And it, it just walks through every one of them in, in lovely detail. And in order to do this, he invents two things. First of all, he invents his own computer language, which he calls mix. And it is a kind of assembler. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very low level machine-like language that, mm-hmm. you know, no machine was ever built to execute this. It's, it's an imaginary language that he, he created for this purpose. And he also created a pseudocode representation so that he could represent the algorithms both in a high-level form and a low-level form. And it's just a wonderful book to read. It goes through things, goes through all the algorithms you'd ever want to want to know about, you know, except for those that are esoteric. But it goes through all of those easily and at, a, at both a low level and a high level. It, it presents a, a terrific background for any programmer to know just exactly what the devil is going on in a queue or a stack or a deck or a tree or a binary tree. Uh, it, just a very good grounding. Mm-hmm. The second book in the series is called Semi-Numerical Algorithms. And this is a, a lovely romp through algorithms that are not directly based on data structures or computation, but are rather things like random number generators. He's, he's got an entire long section on how to generate pseudo-random numbers. <laughs> and he goes through the whole mathematical analysis Uh, That's also a fun book to read. And then the third in that series, if I remember correctly, was called Sorting and Searching. And this is a good one, too, because it just goes through all the possible sort algorithms and search algorithms and merge sorts and shell sorts and quick sorts and bubble sorts. And he just walks through them all again at this mixture of both high and low level. So he gives you the pseudocode and then he gives you this mixed language code. Uh, and and the whole series, the whole all three books are worthy of every programmer, you know, studying well because it's the it is the foundation of everything we do. Well, they're on my list now. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're 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 ancient. I, I keep saying the word ancient. They're old. They're famous. He 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 wanted to do nine, so he actually listed all the titles of the nine, I believe, but then never wrote more than the three, or maybe he added a fourth. He's suddenly gotten Don Knuth has suddenly gotten some energy in the last few years, and I think he's he wants to complete them after you know mm-hmm. forty years of of hiatus, <laughs> right? <laughs> but definitely worth definitely worth owning and reading. Yeah, well, it's funny too because I'm I'm on Amazon looking at the prices on these books and they're not cheap books either. Well, they're they're in demand, right? It's because there's a lot of people who. Uh, a lot of people my age want to have them on their shelves 
as trophies because they read them 30 or 40 years ago and, and <laughs> they're really valuable, right? I actually yeah. have three sets of those, of those three books, uh, my original set, and then mm -hmm. a set that was given to me as a present by someone else. And then I think I've got a signed set, which I keep in a very special, special location. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of, a lot of people my age who cut their teeth on those books and, and gained huge insights back in the seventies, right? Yeah. Yeah. But see, the thing is, is that what we're talking about here, because some people are like, well, computer science has changed over 30 years, but these are fundamentals. You know, they, they, they don't change that much. And so if you get this deep understanding, I, I could totally see where it would, you know, it could really help up your game, so to speak. Yeah, there's nothing in those books that's out of date. Right. <laughs> it's, if, if they, are the, they are the absolute fundamentals of basic software mm -hmm. structure, right? So why anybody would, would uh, disdain these books because they're old is a mystery to yeah. me. <laughs> well, there, there are a lot of things out there that are old that bring immense value, right? And, and really what it comes down to is the same thing we're talking about here, you know, with, you know, some of the, the really, really old texts, you know, religious texts, or, you know, you see the same ideas come up century after century after century. And the reason is, is because they're fundamentally true, right? Or based on fundamental truth. And so the lessons in them apply today, just like they applied, applied a thousand years ago. Yeah, certainly true. Um, or documents like the uh, the Mayflower Compact, compact mm -hmm. or the Magna Carta, or right. or you know the uh, Constitution of the United States. These are these are uh, documents based on what they thought at the time were fundamental truths, and that we we generally still hold to be fundamental truths. Right. And fundamental algorithms <laughs> is yep. is such a document. The the works of Donald Knuth back then, I think deserve that kind of status nice <laughs> all right well this is my reading for the next few months what else do you got <laughs> okay so we move forward in time a year or so so fun the knuth series was actually begun in 1968 and i think he finished the third book in 73 i've got some mm -hmm. notes here that i'm i'm interpolating from now if we go to 1972 there's a lovely little book which is out of print but you can still get it on eBay from various sources. And the name of this book is Structured Programming. It's, uh, the publisher is Academic Press. And it's a little black book written by Ole Johan Dahl, Edsger Dijkstra, and Tony Hoare. <laughs> now, now, if those names don't mean anything to you, those are names from the past that I will, I will relate the significance to you as we go along. The, the title of the book, again, is Structured Programming, and that is a misnomer, although at the time I think they named it well. Uh, nowadays, we associate structured programming with something slightly different. This book is about structure in programming, and the, the authors, Dijkstra, Dahl, and Hoare, talk about separate things. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a book of a bunch of papers that these guys wrote. So one of those papers is Dijkstra talking about why GoTo might not be such a good idea. The, uh, the whole problem of direct transfer of control, the use of GoTo to jump around in a program. 
is taken apart by Dijkstra in, in a, a set of articles in this book. Dahl, Ole Johan Dahl, then goes on to write about the advent of Simula 67, the very first object-oriented programming language, and the struggles that he and his, and his companion, Christian Nygaard, had in the 60s to take the Algol language and twist it into something that could do object orientation. And C.A.R. Hoare kind of forms the, uh, the, the, the fluid background to this whole book. There's a lovely bunch of little algorithms that he pops in there from time to time. But in this one book, you have two of the three major paradigms that have dominated our industry. Uh, over the last 50 years. You've got structured programming that we now, the thing that we now call structured programming, structured analysis, mm -hmm. structured design, all of that stuff, the structured techniques that took off in the 70s. And you've got the object-oriented paradigm, all wrapped up into one nice, tidy little bundle in this very small book written in 1972. And let me relate a story from this book, a story by Ole Ahandal. I'll see if I can do it from my memory. Christian Nygaard and Ole Ahandal were in the midst of writing a simulator to simulate the flow of shipping in and out of the Norwegian fjords. <laughs> Oil, you know, had been discovered in the North Sea, so this had become an interesting problem. And I, I believe they were fairly young at the time and they were academics and they were working in Oslo at the university there. And they were trying to simulate this shipping flow. And they were using the Algol language, the Algol 60 language, if I remember correctly, which of course was a very, very uh, old language by today's standards, but was relatively new back then. And um, as they were fiddling with this language, they actually had the source code of the compiler itself. And they started to make some changes to the compiler. They noticed something. They noticed that you could create local variables of a function in Algol, but you could also create local functions of a function in Algol. This is something most of our modern languages don't do. But in Algol, it was possible for you to de declare a function. And then within that function, you could declare another function. And that inner function would have access to the outer function's local variables. Mm -hmm. So they were used as kind of uh, little utilities inside of a function to manipulate the local variables of the outer function. Well, they, they stumbled on something. They, they, uh, they noticed that if, if you took the stack frame of the function, <laughs> that's where all the local variables are held mm -hmm. in the stack frame, and you moved it to the heap and you did not destroy it when the outer function ended, then the outer function becomes a constructor. The local variables become instance variables. The inner functions become methods and you have objects. <laughs> and they name like JavaScript. <laughs> no, seriously. No, it does, you're right. It has, it has a certain relationship to JavaScript. JavaScript is a language that can have functions inside of other functions. Mm -hmm. Most languages nowadays cannot. This is a, a, it's a, a kind of language called a block structured language. And although C has blocks, C++ has blocks, Java and C Sharp have blocks, they are not blocks that allow you to create inner functions. Right. But Algol was. And so because of that, they moved a data structure, the stack frame, from the stack to the heap, 
and invented object-oriented programming and object-oriented design. And everything flo flowed from that. It was this, this remarkable happy accident, this serendipitous accident of moving a data structure from the stack to the heap. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and objects flowed out from there. Simula, Simula 67 became the language that they created then. And, and they thought at the time that it was a, a good language for writing simulators, which is why they called it Simula. But two people that we know were Simula programmers. One of them was Alan Kay. I was gonna was, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other one was Jarna Struster. Okay. And Jarna, who uh, eventually uh, had to go to New Jersey and work for Bell Labs and, and program in C, did not want to program in C, so he wrote a little preprocessor in front of C to make it look like Simula. And he called it C with classes, which eventually became C++. C++. And Alan Kay, who was a Simula programmer and then went to uh, Xerox at Xerox Park, and somebody bet him whether or not he could write a compiler in a day. I think it was something silly like that. And he came back mm -hmm. with Smallpox, which doesn't look anything like Simula, but has some of the some of the characteristics of Simula. So it's a very interesting tale of how object orientation came to be in our industry. And that's just one of the little stories that you will find in structured programming. So another lovely little book that if you can get your hands on would be fun to read. Wait, which book is this? It, the name of the book is Structured Programming. Okay, so we're still talking about structured programming. Yep. I thought same you were book. leading into another book. I was nope. like- no, no, lovely little book, just fascinating to read. Yeah, usually when you hear about kind of the advent of object-oriented programming, yeah, the name that comes up is Alan Kay. And so I, I was sitting here going, oh, well, this is a story I haven't heard yet. <laughs> yeah, but Alan Kay does come into it. And Alan Kay is yeah. the guy who, who invented the word object-oriented. Right. But it was Ole Johan Dahl and Christian Nygaard who invented the word class. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the inheritance that you see in C++ and Java and C-sharp, that flows directly out of Simula. Interesting, interesting. Directly out of Algol. <laughs> <laughs> it's another thing, you know, people, we, we've got all these languages nowadays. Mm -hmm. they're, they're very expressive and they're very modern, but it's important to understand how these languages came into being. Yeah. The, the evolutionary flow of, you know, how right. it all started. And how do you find this information? I mean, you know, Wikipedia kind of boils it down to almost bullet points in some of these cases, but you don't, you don't really pick up on a lot of this stuff. It, the information is definitely out there. First of all, most of these people are still alive. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're getting old, but, you know, most of them are still alive. And, and there are quite a few memoirs out there. So you can find Alan Kay's memoir of, of the creation of small talk. And Yarna has written massively about the creation of C++. And uh, let's see, Dennis Ritchie, I believe, is gone, but his buddy, Brian Kernahan, is still around. I think Brian mm -hmm. Kernahan is still around. And she's, the, the other name slips me now, the inventors of C and Unix, Dennis oh. Ritchie and Ken Thompson. Ken Thompson, I think, is still around. And, and they, I, I actually attended a lecture by Brian Kernahan about two years ago. And it was fascinating. He's got all these stories and nuggets about 
you know, what happened during those days and the, the personalities involved and, and the, the crazy politics that was going on. So, <laughs> so, I mean, it's really, really interesting stuff. If you're a computer programmer, right. been around for a while, you know, this is really interesting information. So the, the, you can find it. It's out there. You have to do a little bit of digging. Uh, but there's plenty of information about, you know, how these languages came about and why. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, yeah, more, more stuff for me to go do. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's also fascinating to me, right? And it's like, yeah, you know, first, all, the, all of these books so far are older than I am. And <laughs> second, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, the, the history, right? And it's like, oh, okay, that's why we have you know, this weird construct or this weird syntax or, you know, why these things came together this way. It's, it's really, really interesting just to see, okay, yeah, they did. Some of it, it was kind of happenstance as far as this was the way that it, it had to come together based on how it originated. And some of it was, you know, when I'm thinking of things in like JavaScript or Ruby or some of the languages I'm much more familiar with, or even in C sometimes, it's like, oh, well, Somebody just made a judgment call, and now it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, and most notably, that would be Ken Thompson and Dennis Rich. I mean, yeah. the C language had such immense influence. Oh, yeah. Even today, it's just, it dominates all of our languages, except, of course, for closure. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, it's just an immense number of languages have adopted the C style. Oh, yeah. If we go back in time, speaking of history, Go back way back in time. We can go back to 1936, right? And you've mm -hmm. got the, the the famous paper that was written by Alan Turing. Right. This this is a very difficult paper to read. If anybody's ever tried to read Alan Turing's paper, it in it requires uh, an immense amount of intellectual effort to get through it. This is not for the light of heart. The, the <laughs> man literally invents an assembly language, finite state machines, macros, symbols. <laughs> I mean, he invents everything. And the reason he is inventing it all <laughs> is to uh, prove a, or to answer a question in mathematics <laughs> that was posed by David Hilbert a decade before. And the question was the decidability problem, the Einstein's problem. Is it possible okay. to create an algorithm that will solve every possible equation of integers, Diophantine equations, equations of integers? Is it possible to create an algorithm that will solve, that will prove whether or not any particular Diophantine equation has a solution? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> it is not <laughs> true that. And it was Alan Turing that proved that the answer to that was no. And he proved it by inventing a computer. Interesting. Why is that important? Because a computer, every computer ever built, is a machine that executes Diophantine equations. Because mm -hmm. a computer is an operator on integers, only integers. Right. right? So mm -hmm. any expression in integers is a computer program. Mm -hmm. And what he showed in his paper was that there are computer programs that cannot be written. There are answers that cannot be gotten. There are numbers that cannot be computed. And he proved that conclusively in this paper. Now, I mention that because there's a book and it's a fairly modern book 
And it's written by someone whose name you will know. His name is Charles Petzold. And, you know, everybody listening to me, about half the people listening now, the little bells going off in their head. Petzold, Petzold. Oh, yeah, that's the guy who wrote all those MFC books about, you know, DOS and C++ C++ back in the, the Microsoft DOS days. Right? Charles Petzold wrote a book called The Annotated Turing. And in this book, he replicates all of Turing's paper, every word of it but he surrounds it with description of history and an analysis of the mathematics and an analysis of the, of the things that Turing was doing. It's an absolute joy to read. It's a wonderful book. It is, it is Petzold's magnum opus, I believe, the best thing he's ever written. And it, it, I have read it twice. I'm sure I'm going to read it a third time because it's, it's one of those books that just excites the heck out of me whenever I read it. And it, it makes it clear the, the utter genius of Alan Turing, you know, in 1936. So, and how our industry came into being. That's amazing. Of course, I'm disappointed because this book was written in 2008, but. Yes, I know it is a, a modern book, but, but I'll give it some justification. It's about yeah. a much older book. So, or an older paper. Yeah. Imagine Alan Turing, right? Alan Turing invents the computer essentially in 1936 right and then he he actually gets to touch hardware in the 40s as he's trying to break the enigma code enigma, yeah yeah okay all right and, they and made a movie I, about that with uh benedict cumberbatch in it that i saw what a great movie that was that was it was that was a very good movie it was it was tolerably accurate tolerably because mm -hmm. you know it's a movie. It's yeah a, they, they have to, to got to take some stuff out. yeah but, you know, not bad, not bad as things go. There is a, it's a great book about Turing, which is, the name of the book is The Enigma, Turing The Enigma, I believe, which is a wonderful book if you ever want to read about the history of Alan Turing. Imagine him, he eventually gets to touch these electromechanical devices that help him break the, the uh, Enigma codes. And then he gets to touch in 1946, a, an electronic computer. He actually helps to design it, the automated computing engine. He gets to help design it. And then he is the person who writes, probably, the very first code to execute on an electronic computer. And what is he writing in? He's writing in binary. Yeah. He oh, has to write in binary. There's no compilers. There's no assemblers, right? He must write this code in binary and do all the address arithmetic and do the, everything, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> and what does he write? Assembly is hard enough. Yes, exactly. Assembly is hard enough. No, he's writing in binary. Now, uh, to help him, he decides to write in base 32. Mm -hmm. So he skipped octal and hexadecimal and went to right. base 32. And that helped him. And, and, and he also wrote his code right to left instead of left to right. So he invented a whole other scheme there. But what is he writing? He's writing floating point processors. Oh. You know, He's got to do a floating point package. He has to do floating point addition and floating point multiplication right. in assembly language. Not even that, in binary. Yeah. On a machine that has a 22-bit word and 1,024 cells of memory. <laughs> I will never complain about my computer science homework again. <laughs> right. and, and a year later, a year later, he gives a, a lecture. And in this lecture, he says... I'm going to quote this from memory, but I think I've got it. We shall need a great number of mathematicians of discipline 
for there will likely be a great deal of this work, of this kind of work to be done. He knows that. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, then he goes on to say, one of our problems will be the maintenance of an appropriate discipline uh-huh. so that we do not lose track of what we're doing, which every programmer in the world can identify with. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've been writing this program for five minutes. Wait, what was I doing? <laughs> So I think it's fascinating, right? This guy's writing in base 32 and he, and a year later, oh my gosh. He, he comes to the, to a conclusion that pretty well defines the state of our industry right now. <laughs> Although I don't think if you'd asked him, I don't think he would have said there'd be a hundred million programmers in the world. <laughs> no, I don't know that anybody really could have foreseen what it was going to become, especially back in the forties. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Well, he said a great number. So, okay. He was right about that. I don't don't think he knew what the exponent of that number was, but okay. Right. (laughs) So on to another book. And this one would be, oh, a 1978 book, I think, which is uh, Structured Analysis and System Specification by Tom DeMarco. This is the, the book that attempts to put some kind of discipline on software design at the highest levels. This is the book that introduced data flow diagrams. And the, the whole idea that we would want to do a top-down decomposition from the problem statement down to individual functions. And it's a lovely book. It's a wonderful book. All of his diagrams are hand-drawn. This is before, you know, there were tools that would let you draw diagrams. So all of his diagrams are hand-drawn. It's his own handwriting in the, in the diagrams. It's, it's lovely. It's, it's well-documented. It's well-written. It's a, a fun book to read. And it is unfortunate that software developers today do not know these techniques. If I had, if I took a normal programmer today and said, well, can you break this down in a data flow diagram? They probably would not know what I was talking about. Can you show me the data dictionary that you're using here? They probably would not know what I was talking about. Are we still you know, in this confessional? <laughs> well, you know, I am a little bit older than you are. But a still, little bit. <laughs> what, what a wonderful... What a wonderful book that was. I remember being, you know, a young man in my 20s and reading this book. And, you know, the, uh, the, the, my reaction to reading it was, you know, oh, of course, of course we would do that. Why didn't I think of this myself? You know, this, this uh, joy of reading mm-hmm. something so obvious and so convincing. And, you know, this has faded into the background. And nowadays, you know, we, we can, well, everything has to be agile and, you know, we don't do any diagrams and, you know, we just write code all the time. And no, no, I mean, there are, there are some lovely techniques that you can use to help you break problems down in a, in a, in a nice and convenient way that everyone can understand. So, you know, I, I would strongly recommend going back into the seventies and looking at this set of books. This is just one of them, Structured Analysis and System Specification 
by Tom DeMarco. Wow. Th this looks really interesting. And I, yeah, it's another one that I want to dive into. I'll also <laughs> point out that it came out according to Amazon on June 1st, uh, 1979, which means that it came out about six months before I did. So, <laughs> well, there you go. Okay. I was a work in progress at that point. So, there was a certain amount of data flow going on in, never mind. <laughs> I'm not going there. So, there's a companion book to this one. Okay. And the companion book was written by Myler Page Jones. Mm -hmm. And the name of it is uh, Structured System Design, I think. Either Structured System Design or just Structured Design. And it is the, it is the, it is the second book in the series. And, and in this book, he talks, he says, all right, you've done this lovely analysis, this top-down analysis of the, of the problem. And now you want to turn that into a design. And he breaks that down so that there's a way, a nice method of translating all of these data flow models into subroutine models. And again, excellent book, wonderful to read. And by now you can smell the waterfall creeping in here, right? Because one of them is a book on analysis and the other is a book on design. And, th and that's typical of the era, right? This was the waterfall era and everything had to be written in terms of the three things, the big three, analysis, design, and programming. So this was one of the first set of books that had that particular triplication, structured analysis, structured design, and structured programming shows that. Now, this is not the fruit of the poison tree. Yes, waterfall is not a great idea, but the concepts of analysis and design are fine ideas. Right? The mm -hmm. fact that the waterfall phases became a problem for us does not mean that the ideas of analysis and the ideas of design are bad at all. These, these books are tremendously valuable. They have great techniques in them and every programmer should understand what those techniques are and how mm -hmm. to employ them at the right times. So I, I want to make sure that the, the, the waterfall smell that you may be smelling at this point does not uh, convince you to push these books aside because they're very, very, very good books, very valuable. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, to me, waterfall basically embodies, we do all the uh, upfront design, and then as we get better information, we ignore that and religiously adhere to the upfront design that we did when we didn't have good as good information. And so, there, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a certain level of, okay, how are we going to approach this giant problem that we're writing this app for? And how are we going to start putting it together? But yeah, agile development to me is, okay, now we're into this a week and we're realizing that some of the decisions we made weren't as well informed as we would like to, them to have been. And so we're going to adapt our plan because now we realize that we have to account for these other things and this other approach is going to be better for us. And, and that's something you will not see in these books. These books do assume that you are following a phased approach. So as you read structured analysis and system specification, it's very clear that DeMarco is telling you to do all of this work up front. Mm -hmm. You have to ignore that. <laughs> you know, as you read the book, you have to say, okay, but this was during the waterfall era when people behaved right. that way. And then look at the technique, because the technique right. is wildly valuable. It's just that mm -hmm. we're not going to do it all up front anymore. Right. 
right? You're going to apply it over the course of your project. Right. Right. So all of these books need to be read with a certain number, certain filters in place because the, right. the prejudices of the day are still there. And, and by the way, reading those books will tell you what the prejudices of the day were. And that's very valuable information to have so that you can put your own context, your own particular prejudices in context. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> we Absolutely. still have prejudices today. Yes. Now I'm putting links to the all these books in the chat, which winds up in the show notes. Oh, but, great! Uh, the the book, the the sequel to Structured Analysis and System Specification was the Practical Guide to Structured Systems Design. There we go. The practical. Okay, and there's two editions of that book. He actually did another edition in the late '90s or the early 2000s, I think. Yeah, and this is it says subsequent edition, so I'm assuming this is the second edition. Yeah. Okay, but the first edition came out. Uh, way back in the 70s. And then mm. the late, then the later one came out. So I actually had a nice, enjoyable car ride with Myler Page Jones and talked about that book. It must have been 20 years ago. <laughs> but again, these guys are all still alive. Yeah, Tom DeMarco is still alive. I think he's still alive. I saw him well, and back. That's the thing that's really interesting to me about the software industry as a whole is that you look at like some of these other industries that have been around for a really, really, really long time. And yeah, all the pioneers, I mean, are long gone, right? Yeah. And then we we get into software and sure, some of the pioneers of software that were around in the 50s, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a, a majority of them are gone, right? Depending on, you know, how they lived and how old they were. But, you know, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about from the, you know, maybe even 60s, but 70s, yeah, these people are still here, right? And they're all pioneers of, our industry and yeah we go find them i'm kind of tempted to go find them <laughs> well i it, it, hurry <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know right <laughs> yeah i mean you know just speaking of you know alan k right you know i i did a quick google search because i was like i was like i thought it was alan k that it, you know invented object-oriented programming and obviously just invented in a bubble or whatever right he coined the phrase but i mean the guy's 80 years old right and yeah 80 years old is, you know, he could be around 20 years or two years, and we just don't know. Speaking of things like that, um, there's a YouTube channel called Computer File. Uh, I don't know how to spell it. It's computer, P-H-I-L-E maybe, or F-I-L-E. I can't remember. But it's a YouTube channel where they interview guys like that and, and walk through the histories. So that's also fascinating. There's a lot of, of uh, very good information you can get out of uh, about the past and in those YouTubes. So if we move on to another book, this one is a more modern book. It's a 1995 book. And it has suffered under a kind of prejudice that I think needs to be reversed. And the title of this book is Design Patterns, written by Eric Gamma, Richard oh. Helm, Ralph Johnson, and John Blissett, yes. Gang of Four. There has been a, first of all, the book is a, a remarkable book because it takes 23 relatively well-known solutions to common problems and it gives them canonical names and canonical forms. So if you've been programming for 20 or 30 years, right, you have used a, a large number of these solutions, but you may not have known that they had a name. You may not have known that there was a canonical form for these solutions. 
right? And these guys gathered these together and put them into this book. If you've ever, if you've ever studied electronics, you will know that there are a number of books out there uh, that are circuit cookbooks mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, for, that show you various circuits that everybody uses. Well, this is the circuit cookbook for software. It's just a bunch of extremely common, well-known solutions to common problems. Right. I strongly urge every programmer to know these patterns and know them well. You know, put, get them in your head. Know the canonical forms. Know the names so that you can talk to each other at a higher level. Right? You can talk to each other. Oh, should we use a visitor for this? My goodness, maybe we should use a, a decorator for this. And, and, you know, once you use those words and you have them in your mind, the design snaps into your head instantly and you suddenly know. Or if you're reading code and you mm -hmm. see the word decorator in the code, bam, you know what's going on. So very, very useful, very, very helpful. Unfortunately, there has been a counterculture against this book. That's, that's come up in the last 10 to 15 years. And it has to do with the fact that the book is, what, 30 years old now, 1995? Something like that, yeah. yeah close to 30. So it has to do with the fact that the book is old. And, and you know, a, a book that's that old couldn't possibly have any, you know, usefulness to our modern languages. And then there's a second aspect to this, to this um, counterculture, which is that modern languages are the solution the design patterns are really just hacks that our modern languages solve. This is entirely false. <laughs> this is a, a completely ridiculous assertion about what design patterns are and about what right. modern languages are. So this, I often describe this book as the most important software book written in the last 30 years. Oh, Not wow. because it contains anything new, but because it codifies things that every programmer should know intrinsically. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so that I give it a very high ranking in my, in my uh, constellation of books. Yeah. I will tell you that when I interviewed for my first full-time programming job it was of what, 2006, I showed up and you know, the technical interview was over the phone with the programmer that was working for the, the company I was applying to. He was incidentally their only Ruby on Rails developer. And so he, he was doing the, you know, the technical eval. But if I remember right, his daughter had a birthday party. And so we were just sitting by the phone, you know, while he, you know, took a little bit of time out of his day off to, to talk to me. And, you know, we talked through various aspects of Ruby and Rails and, and how everything worked. And then he asked me specific questions about design patterns. And a lot of it came out of this book and all of a sudden, I mean, that, that really shaped a lot of the things that I thought about. And I, I, I can't say that I've read the book front to back, but I have definitely, you know, picked through it because I was like, why is this so important? And as I started to pick it up, I was like, Oh, I'm starting to see this, not just from the standpoint of these are some of the patterns that I have seen in the code that I use or the code that I write or the code that I'm working on, but also I'm probably going to wind up developing some design patterns of my own as thing goes, things go on. Or there are other design patterns that exist in like Ruby on Rails, for example, that, you know, aren't codified here, but are patterns that 
are going to show up in other places because they solve these specific problems. And so that's, that's where this kind of opened things up to me. And then pretty early on on Ruby Rogues, we actually talked to Martin Fowler about his book, Patterns of Enterprise Arch- Application Architecture. And, you know, that just kind of drove it home to me because it actually contains the algorithms that influenced DHH when he wrote Rails. And so, I mean, you can find Active Record in there. You find, yeah. you know, that, that's why it's called Active Record is because that's the name of the pattern in the, this other book. Yes. And yeah, it was things like that that really just drove home to me. Hey, look, if you understand what these patterns look like, you know, the observer pattern, which I think is in the Gang of Four book. It is. Yeah. Right. That's something that's come up over and over and over and over again as I've written code, right? And it's like, oh, we understand what all these pieces are and how they go together because it's been done so many times based on this pattern. And and that's where it just, I don't know, it, it's been kind of this fundamental foundation, at least for my career, even though I haven't read the book front to back, of just things that I pull out on a routine basis because that understanding is it makes it so much easier to just recognize and solve these problems or recognize the solution that somebody else came up with. So there's another book and it's kind of a companion to design patterns. And it was written by Martin Fowler and, it, and the, uh, the date is 1997. And it, it is perhaps the most unappreciated book that Martin Fowler ever wrote. And it does not deserve to be unappreciated. The title of this book is Analysis Patterns. And it is a wonderful book. <laughs> it, it came long before his Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture, which, which, by the way, is also an excellent book, but very, very down-to-earth and very uh, nitty-gritty. Analysis Patterns is a much higher-level kind of thought of how you structure data structures and processes at the level of before you think about the implementation of the code, mm-hmm. how are you going to how are you going to conceive of these of these various data structures and and processes? How are you going to order them in your mind? What techniques are you going to use to to put them in place? And so I I found the book to be a very very helpful book and and one that far too few people ever read or or know at all. Uh, maybe the word analysis poisoned it because the book came out in 97 just as the agile revolution was occurring. And of course, the word analysis became a dirty word in those days. Mm-hmm. So I think it suffers from a title problem. I wish he would uh, reintroduce the book with perhaps a, a slightly different name, like just high level patterns, because they, they are wonderful. It's a wonderful book and, and great stuff to have in it. So I would also recommend that. Awesome. There's two how more far into our, cover. I was going to say, how, how far in are we? Because Yeah, no, we got for an hour. And, and I think I can get through both of them. One of them is a relatively short. So let me do that one first. And it's a book that a lot of people have read. It's still pretty popular even today. There isn't a counterculture against it at this point. But it is, it's a, a worthwhile book. And it's called Domain Driven Design by Eric Evans. Mm, good and, book. Yes, it is a good book. At least the first half is great. The second half gets pretty thick, but it's worthwhile plotting through it if you can make it. But excellent. If you want to understand how to create a domain model, how to communicate with programmers and customers and managers and users all at the same time, 
this is a lovely book that will drive some of these very good concepts home. Kent Beck said of this book that this is what he always meant by the metaphor practice in extreme programming. You may remember that there was this metaphor practice that no one understood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Kent Beck said, this is what I meant by that. So a, an excellent book to read. Everyone should have that one on their shelf and have at least read the first half of it. And then the last book I thought would be useful to cover. And we've got a few minutes. And, and this is, my, this is the fa my favorite book to recommend. And it is The Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs by Harold Abelson, Gerald J. Sussman, and Julie Sussman. <laughs> and I think the latest edition is 1996. I read this book 20 years ago, and it, it just, it had a huge impact on the way I write code today. It was, uh, it was one of those books where, uh, you know, I had been a programmer for 30 years already. And as I read this, I thought, whoa, there's stuff in here I sure didn't know. So I was, I was very, very pleased with this book. It starts out with the basics. It's completely unapologetic. It moves at light speed. You, oh, have, yeah, to, you have to keep up with it. <laughs> and it will, it will overturn your, belief, uh, your beliefs about software at least twice as you read it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really terrific book. And this is one... So when was it? It was probably seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, something like that. The late Jim Wyrick actually started a book club for this book. And there were a whole bunch of us that went through it. And so we would read the book and then we would do some of the exercises as exercises in the book. And, you know, I had to figure out how to get Scheme to run on my computer, which isn't terribly hard, but it's no, it's like, no. and then it's okay. Uh, now that I've got this going, well, this functional programming stuff is completely different from, you know, what I'm doing day to day. And anyway, it, it just, yeah, it, it opened my eyes to a whole bunch of stuff and made me think about some things in some really different ways. It is a book about functional programming, but I don't believe the book ever says functional programming. I don't believe it no. ever used that term. No, it does. I don't think so either. Yeah. It, and, and. Most of it is about functional programming, although there's quite a bit of it that is not. Mm -hmm. It goes through an awful lot of non-functional programming as well. Um, but that's not really the, the thing about the book that struck me. The thing about the book that struck me is, is that it covers everything. It goes from the basics up to uh, extremely high levels, up to the point where you're writing a compiler. But it does yeah. so, so unapologetically, right? It assumes that you are intelligent, <laughs> which an awful lot of books don't. Right? It assumes you are an intelligent and it gives you no, no time to breathe. <laughs> Just read yeah. this book at high speed. So I, I, I you know, uh, again, strongly recommend that book. By the way, of all the books I have mentioned, this one is the only one that's free. You can download the PDF, yep. give it away. And there are videos out there of the authors lecturing on the book that are absolutely priceless. <laughs> you watch people doing scheme on a blackboard with, you know, parenthesis, 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 parenthesis. Oh, boom. Yeah, no kidding. It's hysterical and, and useful. Yeah, you don't have automatic parentheses matching on the blackboard, that's for sure. No, no. So they're counting them. And it, it's fun to watch them do it. And they're writing all this code on a blackboard. Or sometimes they use an overhead projector. But I think the lectures all come from the late 80s. 
Yeah. My understanding too, though, is that this was the textbook that they used to teach their class at MIT. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. It was the MIT computer science textbook. (laughs) Yeah. So that said, I mean, that's why there are exercises in it, which are terrific, by the way. And some of them are really hard, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it's, it's also, yeah, it, it, it'll challenge you. And I think that's why it's put together the way that it is, is because, yeah, it's, it's designed to push MIT students to really understand the fundamentals of computer programming. Yeah. This is one that I, I highly, highly, highly recommend. And it's, it's, it's interesting too. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying it's a great book. I was agreeing. Yeah. One one thing that I find interesting just from my own experience, you know, and, and now people are coming in with a completely different experience in computer in programming. But, you know, I came in you know, early 2000s into programming. And so the people that I was reading that influenced me were the people that were coming out of like Agile Manifesto and things like that. So it's people like like you and Kent Beck and Martin Fowler and you know, the people that were writing kind of through the 90s and, and 2000s, early 2000s. And so it's interesting to me to see, okay, you know, there's this whole other generation of stuff that, you know, makes a, you know, kind of fills in some of the gaps before that, but also gives us more of this stuff that was the basis for, I guess, the people that influenced me early on, right? So this is these are the things that, that you came up on that then influenced the ideas that you and Kent and Martin and all these other people put out when I was coming up in software. And I'm also wondering then at what point are we going to see the next generation of things coming out right? I'm assuming it's going to be soon now, where again, you know, we're going to see this this evolution again. And, you know how much of this is going to kind of get lost in the mix again, not understanding the basis from where the people who are influencing us now are coming from, if that makes sense. So there's something to keep in mind about that. And that is that, that in the early days, if you, you look, look back to people like Tom DeMarco and mm-hmm. Leo Handal and Edsker Dijkstra, and, and then even people like Tom uh, going forward, even further, like, uh, the guys who wrote the design patterns book or or even Martin Fowler and myself and Kent Beck, all of us grew up at a time or grew up in this industry at a time when Moore's law dominated everything and things were changing at exponential rates. And, you know, the things that were changing were the hardware. The hardware was changing at a, at a ridiculous rate. So I, you know, I cut my teeth on a machine that, that, had 4k of core and could execute a half a million instructions a second and nowadays you know we are so many orders of magnitude above that it's 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 Mm -hmm. almost impossible to count but that has stopped moore's law is dead right we are not increasing at at an exponential rate we're not even increasing at a linear rate you know we're pretty well flat and we have been flat for about 10 years so that's an interesting backdrop upon which to place your generation model of you know how how are things going to move forward in the future we came at this from this exponential growth point of view Mm -hmm. next generation will be writing about life on the plateau oh that's really interesting i hadn't really thought about that hey folks i don't know if you've noticed but i've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top five percent of developers in the field 
If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. <laughs> and and it's, it's funny because, I mean, I remember in college we were talking about Moore's Law, right? Because I graduated in 06. And yeah, I mean... After a while, I was like, well, we it, it's sort of Moore's Law because we're finding ways to put more processors on the chip as opposed <laughs> to, you know, making it, you know, twice as fast and twice as small. And I can't remember exactly what goes into it. But even at this point, we're not really there, right? We're getting incremental movement with the, you know, the speed of the processor or, you know, maybe some new pipeline that allows us to process operations differently that makes it a little bit faster more efficient or something like that yeah we're down in the engineering trade-off yeah area, you know re regime now it's like okay we can we can eke another nanosecond out of it if we do this right the, the trade-offs come with costs as well so when you're adding more processors to a chip you mm -hmm. have to take a lot of the caches off the chip off right. the chip. It used to make it faster so you put four processors on a chip you do not get four times the power mm-hmm and then, you know, we, we really haven't put any more than about four on a chip. <laughs> right. You can get an eight one, but it didn't grow. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't yeah. happen, right? We're not at 16. We're not at 32. We're not at 64. And that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen 16 in some like high-end servers, but yeah. I mean, yeah, okay. And it's probably on a couple of chips too, but yeah, we're not, we are not faced with 4,096 processors on a chip. Right. We well, thought, yeah. yeah. We thought we were. That's what actually started the functional programming revolution. But then that died. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting, too, is now you go look at some of the innovations that are coming on, like the the H1, or not the H1, the M1 chip that Apple's coming out with for their oh, yeah. laptops, yeah. right? Yeah. And people are getting all kinds of excited about. But basically what they did is they moved the cache and a bunch of yeah. other stuff back onto the chip. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> so they, yeah. They, they did, right? And so what what it's down to now is we're going to increase performance by shortening the wire yes. right yeah so we get and, better and turnaround on this stuff <laughs> there's only so many more atoms you can take out of that wire yeah it's so true <laughs> but you know if if you had to cash out to disk or cash out to another uh even another chip on the motherboard you know it, yep. it yep. took time it's you know one foot per nanosecond Yep. So anyway, super fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious since we're talking about books and you've, you've written a couple. What, what's your favorite book that you've written? Oh, heavens. So the favorite book that I wrote, not the most popular book, but the favorite book that I wrote is uh, Agile Software Development Principles, Patterns and Practices. Oh, really? Yes. That's that's the book that actually captures the majority of my mindset. You know, when I when I go out and lecture and talk and teach people, 
I teach people from a background of experience. And that book captures about 80% of it. The book that is the most popular, of course, is Clean Code, but that's Code. that's probably no more than about 10% of you know, my background, 10% of my mindset. Mm-hmm. When I'm teaching people, I will talk about Clean Code for a while, but then the vast amount of time, I'm talking about much higher level concepts that come out of that Agile Software Development book. So that's my favorite. I find that fascinating, to be honest. Because, <laughs> yeah, when, when, when I talk to people about you know, I'm like, oh, I'm having a conversation with with Bob today. And they're like, oh, yeah, clean code, you know, made, made such a difference in my career. And yeah, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting just to see, OK, you know, the, these are the things that that you're finding that make a difference that matter that that make the impact that you want to make. Anyway, well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Man, I've, right. I've got a reading list of, as long as my arm now. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. And- but uh, yeah. This is this is just a few of the books that we can talk about, but you know, maybe we'll come back and do another one of these on books or, or history or something like that. Yeah, but the flip side is is that I mean these these are the ideas that are kind of the foundations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and as I talked about before, these these are the ideas that are the foundations for the people that kind of built some of the foundations that that I came up in software on, and so I'm really curious to go back and see what's there and see what kinds of things you guys took for granted, you know, or, or thought were important, depending on the way you look at it, right? As you kind of shaped the next level of things with agile development, with some of the, the software practices and, and, you know, some of the standards that you put in place for your code, things like that. So, yeah, should be All fun. Right. All right. All right, Bob. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for coming and uh, blowing my mind. And yeah, everyone else, till next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.